What's the relationship between smell and memory? Can our sense of smell improve our emotional health? Should a smell check be part of our regular physical checkups? I'm Bonku, the host of Design Lab. It's a show where we explore the question, how might we design healthier lives? Today's guest is Nancy Rawson. She is the vice president of the Monell Chemical Sensor Center in Philadelphia. Nancy holds a master's degree in nutrition from the University of Massachusetts and a doctorate in biology from the University of Pennsylvania. Her career spans academia and industry. She has a faculty position at the Monell Center where she studies how age and health impacts taste and smell. She's had various roles in the food and ingredient industries where she's built research teams from the ground up. She's gotten a lot of rewards for new product innovation. Since 2016, she's been at Monell, where she works to catalyze and manage Monell's relationships with nearly 40 corporate partners. She leads strategic and operational planning activities to support the center's growth and success. She is the founding advisor for the Smell and Taste Association of North America. Nancy is committed to increasing awareness of the importance of taste and smell for our health and well-being. If you haven't subscribed to the Design Lab newsletter, why not? You're missing out. Go to the podcast show notes to subscribe. Each week, Rob Pugisi, the producer of Design Lab, is going to send you some cool stuff to read about design and health. And remember to rate us on Apple Podcasts. Go there, give us five stars, leave us a review, tell a friend about the show. That's how you as a listener can support us. Now, here's my conversation with Nancy Rawson. Nancy Rawson, thank you for joining us on Design Lab. I'm so excited to talk with you. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's get right into smell. I feel like it's the most underappreciated sensory system. Isn't olfactory the oldest sensory system in our bodies? In fact, it is. From an evolutionary perspective, the very first organisms needed to be able to sense the chemicals in their environment. And in fact, that's why we call our sense of smell a chemical sense, because that's uh, what we're detecting. And we're sensing chemicals that are in the air. And so these are things that are approaching us from a distance. So this is really the most important sense before we can even see anything or often hear anything, these molecules are coming through us in the air and telling us there might be a predator there, or there might be a mate there, or there might be food over there. So it's very important for survival from the very earliest organisms. It's, it's like our spidey sense. It's a superpower, right? Exactly. Now, is it true that smells fully develop when we're in the womb? Yes, our sense of smell, the cells that detect odors are developed before birth. And our sense of taste also is mostly developed before birth as well. And we know that odors and taste compounds can get into the fluid surrounding the infant, the fetus, and we're exposed to these flavors before we're born. Mm. And they can shape the kinds of responses that we have to those flavors later on in life. That's amazing. There's so many directions I want to go, but can you give us an anatomy lesson on what 
part of our brain is responsible for smell? So this is really hard to do without pointing. So I'll I'll be descriptive here. And if you put your finger on the tip of your nose okay, and you I'm slide right it up okay. to the bridge of your nose, right? Uh-huh. That's if you go inside your nose right about there, that's where the cells are that detect odors. That's called our olfactory epithelium. Okay. And that's about a postage stamp size piece of tissue that contains around 6 million of these receptor cells. Mm. And these detector cells that are sensing odors are actually nerve cells. They're they're nerve cells just like the nerves in our brain. Mm. And they have these long processes that go through this little plate, this bony plate called the cribiform plate that kind of looks like a colander. So it's mm. a bony plate with holes in it. And the these processes called axons go through those holes and they connect with a small part of the brain called the olfactory bulb, which is shaped like a bulb. And it sort of projects under the brain. In humans, it doesn't look very impressive when you look at an actual human brain. The olfactory bulb is is sort of a small blob sticking out from the bottom of the brain. But Um, isn't it part of this larger system of the brain called the limbic system? It's part of a larger system. So that olfactory bulb is the first relay station, but that directly connects with the limbic system, the hypothalamus, which controls food intake, the hippocampus, which controls memory, the amygdala, which is involved in emotion. And the part of the brain that interprets these signals is called the olfactory cortex. So that's where it all comes together and the signals get translated into an aroma perception. That is wild. So that's why smell is so related to our emotions and memory. Is is that right? Because, you know, I'm I'm a surfer. And so when I smell surf wax, it's often scented. And then every time I smell surf wax, I get this flood of memories. Like I think of waves and beaches where I've surfed and traveled to. I smell the ocean mm-hmm. and it's it's so rich. It's almost like in my brain, someone's playing me a videotape of places where I've surfed mm-hmm. just by smelling surf yes. wax. It's a very potent association with memory. In fact, there was a study done here at Monell many years ago where they had subjects come in and, and expose them to odors and while they were looking at pictures. And then they had to remember and talk about the pictures afterwards. And the odors didn't necessarily help the people remember the pictures, hmm. but the words they used to describe the pictures were much more emotional and emotionally hmm. charged. So instead of, if the picture was a puppy, instead of just saying it was a puppy, when they had an odor associated with it, they would use words like, oh, a cute little adorable puppy, right? Mm. They would use much more emotionally charged words. So it clearly creates a context around events and objects and memories that makes them more salient, more important to us. Have people tried to catalog memories by associating them with certain smells? Because I've kind of experimented with that a little bit. Like at certain periods of my life, I've used different types of soap uh-huh. and I go, Hey, I'm not going to use that scent anymore. Just, and I've like kind of experimented 
if I go back and use that soap and will it trigger the memories of that year where, where I use that? Yes, yes, absolutely. There's been some work done looking at that. A lot of this is done in the fragrance industry and in the consumer products industry. It doesn't always get published. But as a sort of non-scientific or semi-scientific example, Monel participated in the Philadelphia Flower Show right before COVID. And the theme was, I don't know, the South of France or something like that. So we did a whole exhibit around lavender. And on the back of the exhibit, we had a poster and we gave people stickers and there were different emotions. And we said, just put the sticker, you know, what do you associate with lavender? Mm. Right. And it might be sleepy or anxious or angry or sad, or, you know, we had all these different words. And just from watching people and talking with people, you could tell that there's certain types of associations with lavender. Some people had a very positive association where they were from a group that lavender was used primarily in maybe bath products and, you know, scented products like that. But then other people, maybe they had an association that was not so pleasant. And maybe it was used in a negative, negative environments where people mm. were trying to use lavender to make them relax. And it didn't, you know, like it wasn't a positive experience. So there's definitely differences in some products. You know, there's certain like pine scent. A lot of people now associate with cleaning products mm -hmm, and it's mm -hmm. not necessarily associated with being out in the forest. Right. Mm. So there's different generational associations that may vary. Obviously, baby powder. The scent of baby powder is one that's so very tightly linked to baby powder, right? Yeah. That particular scent. But if they stop using that, you know, in a few generations, people will not have that association. It'll be completely mm. different. You are vice president at Monell Chemical Census Center. Can you tell us about the center? It's in Philadelphia. What is the mission of the center? So our mission is to create new knowledge in the senses of taste and smell and the related senses and to help apply that knowledge to improve public health. And so we have been around for over 50 years. We're currently at 3500 Market Street and we're the only freestanding nonprofit institute entirely dedicated to this type of research in the world. In the world? They're just, just not the U.S. Right. Well, that seems outstanding to me because why aren't there more centers like Monell? Because there's so much research I feel like is not being done and it's not funded. I feel that so much more could be done in this space. Yes. And there is since, you know, in the last, when Monell was founded 50 years ago, there was very little research mm. in taste and smell. And Monell was created by a couple of individuals, Dr. Morley Kerr, who was an academic scientist who studied taste and smell in birds, interestingly enough, hmm. and an industry individual, Hank Walters, who was the president of International Fragrances and Flavors. And they realized that there was no, not enough research being done in this area. And it was a really important area and interesting. So they got funding from a lot of, you know, federal national science foundation, IH, mm -hmm. as well as a lot of industry and private donations. 
and most importantly, the Monell Foundation, which is how we got our name. And the Monell Foundation has been one of our largest supporters ever since our founding to create the center. Now, there's in the meantime, over the, you know, the last 50 years, many scientists have realized the potential value of understanding these senses. Our olfactory system was the first part of the central nervous system to be discovered to regenerate throughout life. So wait, wait, what what does that mean? These cells can be replaced throughout life. So Uh we can actually make new nerve cells. And for a long time, we learned that the brain doesn't regenerate. The nerves that you have, you know, that's all you have. If they die, they're gone. But the olfactory system was the first place that we discovered these nerves actually can be replaced. And then they started studying other parts of the olfactory pathway, realizing that, oh, there's cells there that can create new neurons. And now we know that there's a number of places in the brain where new neurons are created. Mm. But it was first discovered in the nose. So there's a lot of pioneering discoveries that have been made through the study of these senses. And there's now a lot of researchers around the world doing similar types of work. But there is so many different perspectives on the research under one roof. So we work all the way from really hardcore genetics, understanding RNA and regulation of receptor expression and how the cells decide to become olfactory neurons when they grow up, all the way through to human perception and looking even out in the field and studies of the effects of exposures to different chemicals on our sense of smell, such as what happened after 911 mm-hmm. and things like that. So we we have a very wide portfolio of types of research all sitting under one roof. So that makes it really exciting place to work. And I know you're doing research in COVID-19. Is there hope for those patients who have lost their sense of smell from this virus to regain that sense of smell and I know that is a huge fear of mine. One of the biggest fears of me getting COVID, I feel for me personally, is like, I don't want to lose my sense of smell because I love to eat. (laughs) It would be horrible. So is there hope for people who have lost their sense of smell through COVID to regain it? So there is some good news there. And most people who lose their sense of smell from COVID have regained it. Mm. I would say at least 80% do recover We're still collecting data as to whether they recover fully, but at least they do recover to a certain degree. And it may be that, you know, within a year, they're recovered 60%. It might Mm. take three years to get to 90%. We just don't know yet. Mm. It's a big experiment in progress. But even for the patients that still have no sense of smell after a year, we are seeing the potential for recovery. What can happen in some cases, though, is they'll go through a phase of what's called parosmia. Mm -hmm. So as these nerves are recovering, they don't necessarily get back to quite the right place in the brain and or they don't recover all at the same rate. Mm -hmm. So we have about three or four hundred different odor receptors. So we have six million cells. We have about 350 or so different receptors that detect these chemicals floating around. And 
the odor quality is determined by the pattern of receptors that's activated. Mm. So if you think of um, a series of locks and keys and the odors are the keys and the receptors are the locks and some locks will recognize multiple keys and some locks only one key, but it's the pattern of locks that are opened by a given key that determines the quality of that odor. Mm. And so if you have a, a change in which locks are recovered or still present or are being created, that signal pattern in the brain is going to be different. And the brain is going to interpret it in some way that isn't necessarily what you remember or what it should be. Mm. And this is where, you know, people go down to take their cup of coffee in the morning and instead of smelling like coffee, it smells like rotten garbage. Oh my gosh, that is a nightmare for me because I am a big coffee drinker. I have two cups every morning and it is my favorite beverage more than wine or bourbon. I I love coffee so much. That that smell is just it's bliss for me. It's devastating for people like you that that's such an important part of your quality of life and it your is. everyday daily experience. I mean, and sometimes, yeah, sometimes when I'm drifting off to sleep, I look forward to that cup of coffee in the morning. It's like, I want to go to sleep so I can have that cup of coffee in the morning. That's <laughs> how much I look forward to it. And during COVID in the early part, it was sort of a daily diagnostic test for me. I would mm -hmm. wake up and go, and I smell my coffee and go, oh, I could smell it. So I think I'm in good shape here. Right. But you are developing or a more sophisticated smell test. Is that that's, that's right? That's correct. It's called that's Sentinel? Correct. Yes, yes. So we've developed a rapid smell test. So part of the problem with COVID was that there is no baseline data. So mm. people thought they were losing their sense of taste. Often they would say nothing tastes right because people sometimes have trouble distinguishing between smell and taste. And we didn't really know were they losing their taste, were they losing their smell? Was it a complete loss? Was it a partial loss? And the tests that were available, there's an odor identification test. There is some other kinds of tests that require special equipment. They were time consuming, they were complicated, and they were expensive. The odor ID costs, you know, some of them cost like $20, $25 a piece. Oh, yeah, so no one's going to pay for that. Not something you can do every day, right? Uh -huh. So one of the things that we did during COVID when we couldn't actually test people was sit down and say, let's come up with a test that we can mail out. We targeted a dollar a piece, which is what these are about what they cost. And so it's a very simple test. You scan the code, pops a little survey. There's three uh, lift and sniff patches. Mm -hmm. So you sniff three patches, you tell, you say which one has the odor, you rate it, rate the intensity on a slider, and then you get four choices to identify what the odor is. And in the latest version of that, we're also asking for how pleasant is the odor. Mm. And so that test now has been used in several clinical studies to evaluate how well it performs. And it's performing really well in, in a lot of settings. It's been used in you know, clinical settings in nursing homes for the care workers to check before they were going in. 
Mm. We've done some other larger clinical studies. It can be used by fairly young kids too. Mm. It's pretty simple. And with the hedonic rating, we've also seen that it's quite good at detecting parosmia, mm. which up till now, really, there's been no test at all that could detect that. It was strictly based on self-report. And when you ask people about their sense of smell in terms of intensity or, you know, general function, they're not always very good at reporting it Mm -hmm. unless it's completely gone. You can Mm -hmm. tell if it's completely gone, but if it's just deficient, oftentimes people will have no idea Mm -hmm. that they're at 50% of what they should be or what they used to be. So having these empirical tests, having these quantitative quantitative data that you could monitor over time is really important. Hmm. Is there a potential for a smell test to be a diagnostic test for other diseases, like other viruses or even neuro disorders? Yes. So what has been known for a long time is that one of the earliest symptoms of Alzheimer's disease is an inability to identify odors. That's one of the earliest symptoms? I did not know that, huh? Yep. And there's been a lot of research showing this, that if you add an odor identification test to the other standard types of assessments that are done by a neurologist, you vastly improve the accuracy and the predictive ability of that assessment. And we've been working to try to you know, get that incorporated. But part of the problem has been that the odor identification test that had been used was this expensive, time-consuming, not that easy to do test. And so now we're doing studies to see whether our easy Sentinel short version can do as well. And so that's a very exciting project that's going on. And the other neurodegenerative disorder that that smell is affected is Parkinson's disease. Mm. And that's a little bit different. It's not necessarily odor identification, but it's intensity and discrimination and detection. Mm. So those, you know, we're also testing with Sentinel to see if that can be useful. Because again, with Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, both the earlier you can detect these conditions, the better chance you have to delay progression. When we get our yearly physical examinations with our doctors, we do a visual acuity test. You know, we do that Snellen's chart. How come there's not a yearly smell test that we do? Should we have one of those? We should absolutely have one of those. And uh, we're working with the Smell and Taste Association of North America, which is a patient advocacy association, and also with another group called World Taste and Smell Day to promote this idea and to end with the National Institutes of Health and other you know, medical organizations to try to promote the idea that every person for their annual checkup should get a smell test. It's so low cost and it's just a nice screening test. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Is there a way to measure our olfactory acuity? Because my sister and I, I think we both had this like heightened sense of smell like bad smells bother us. And, you know, we just, I think we're able to detect some smells better than other people, or maybe it just impacts us Mm -hmm. more. Is there a way to quantify that? There is. So there's a test called an odor detection threshold. And this is a test that 
you would have to come into the lab to do because you have to test many different concentrations of odors in a particular setup. But yes, the sensitivity to odors varies vastly among individuals. Mm -hmm. And it also varies across odors. So there are some odors, as I said, we have these 350 or so different receptors and there is genetic variations in those receptors. So you don't have the same 350 that I have. Mm. And I might have one that's not very sensitive at all to a particular odor. And you might have the version that's super sensitive, right? And so most of the time we don't smell a single odor in isolation. It's probably part of a mixture, right? But as an example, there's a chemical in the fragrance from daffodils. So do you like the fragrance of daffodils? Mm, not really. Yeah. So we did a, this was another study, little demonstration that we did at the flower show a few years ago with daffodils, with that odor. Uh-huh. And one lady came up and said, oh, I call them diaper daffodils. <laughs> and I said, ah, that's because you have the super smeller version of this receptor. <laughs> and, uh-huh. and there's a particular chemical that has that sort of fecal odor to it. That, you know, if you're really sensitive to it, it, it kind of dominates the daffodil aroma. And uh, if that's... you have the less sensitive version of that, the aroma of a daffodil is quite pleasant. Oh, that's so funny. There's a one disease process that you could diagnose just by smelling is melana. It's upper GI bleeding. And so when I, I work in the emergency room and <sighs> when patients, it's a very distinct order and anyone listening who has experienced that it, it just oh it just drives me crazy because i'm like oh my gosh that smell and it's it's almost like someone's screaming in my ear it's like that intense and <laughs> but you could actually make that diagnosis in the hall in the hallway because that smell is so strong yeah well all different diseases and conditions change the odors that we emit hmm. and we're doing also a lot of work on sensing, on detecting disease and uh, head injury and bacterial versus viral infection using smell and using different kinds of biosensors. For head injury, I mean, is there a potential to use that, for example, in sports? If yes. it's like an initial screening process, right. I mean, we see all these football players get hit and can you do like it's like a rapid smell test on the football field? Right. That's what we would we would be looking to do. So, you know, we're in the process of identifying those signatures that reflect that. And and as you can imagine, you have to do a lot of work to demonstrate that it's specific. Yeah. And against a lot of different background kind of things that somebody might be emitting. But yes, that is the idea. And the progress that's being made is just incredible. That's so cool. What about Bacteria versus viral illness. What are the applications of smell in that setting? That seems fascinating. Right. So if you can imagine the changes in your immune system differ between a bacterial infection and a viral infection, they trigger different types of immune responses. Uh And that changes your metabolism and the types of chemicals that are being released. So if you could discriminate very quickly, you could quickly say, don't bother taking an antibiotic because it's not going to help you. This is a virus. Yeah, I would love that because 
I have so many patients who want an antibiotic and for, you know, for good reason, they're, they're frustrated. And I think there's been, there's this narrative around antibiotics can make you heal faster and there's this demand for it. And I go, Hey, your symptoms are a viral sinusitis. You do not need antibiotics, but it's very hard to convince some people when there's not sort of a quantitative test out there here. And so if I had some more quantitative data of like, Hey, we did a rapid smell test and it's consistent that what you're experiencing is viral rather than bacterial in nature. Is that right? Is that the sort of application that Mm -hmm. we can use for that? Yeah. Yeah. And also, you know, things like even out in the wild for detecting avian influenza, in bird populations and other things like that. So in animal, you know, welfare kinds of applications and in zoos even and other situations where it's even harder to get specific information about from the patient, as it were. Mm-hmm. But interestingly, that we've made a lot of progress there too. But with all of the mask wearing, it's been hard to get enough samples of bacterial infection. Uh... There's not a lot of strep right now, for instance, (laughs) right? So that, you know, COVID has uh, not COVID per se, but the procedures related to COVID have slowed down that research a bit. (laughs) Is it possible to increase your sense of smell? Can you work on your smell like it's a muscle? Yeah. So here's where it's really interesting area of research called smell training. Mm -hmm. And this originally was demonstrated years ago that for certain odors, there's an odor called androstenone that is a musk odor. And some people can't smell it at all. Mm. And other people are very sensitive to it. And they showed, Chuck Waisaki here actually showed that if you expose yourself repeatedly to this odor, you become sensitized to it. You start to be able to smell it. You become, you're never as sensitive as somebody who's really sensitive, but you could certainly detect it. And so that suggested that the system was sort of adapting itself to Mm. what it's exposed to. And so later on, people started to do things like smell training for people that had a poor sense of smell Mm. to see if it would help. And there's a couple ways that it can help. One is really just in somebody with maybe a normal, but maybe not like really good sense of smell. It will help them articulate and learn how to identify odors. So, you know, people can train themselves to be really good at identifying odors. And that's what perfumers and flavorists do all the time. Mm -hmm. The other thing that can happen, though, is even with people that have a poor sense of smell from a viral infection, say, it seems to promote recovery of our sense of smell. What? Really? And so huh. it's, it's kind of like physical therapy for the nose. Wow. And what we think is happening is that as the connections are regenerating and being reestablished in the brain, as you're sniffing, you know, geranium and lemon and coffee and thinking about it and remembering what it smelled like, mm. it's helping the brain to strengthen the proper connections and improving the signal to noise Mm. adjustment. If you think about a stereo set, right? Mm. You can adjust the gain, right? So, So the system is really designed to detect differences. 
And even if we don't know yet really if it's increasing the intensity of the odors or if it's really just adjusting the gain so that the brain is now recognizing that this is a signal and it's not noise. So, you know, we're still, we don't quite understand the mechanism, but we do know that in many cases, smell training does seem to help people recover, but there's still a lot more work needed to be done to understand, you know, what is the good number of odors? Is there an optimal protocol and how often do you need to do it? And for how long? It's kind of a hard protocol, the one that that is being used to adhere to for a long period of time. Mm. Now, if that olfactory bulb is part of the limbic system, which is related to our responsible for our, our emotions and our memory, are you doing research into how the senses can impact or improve our mental or emotional health? Absolutely. It's so interesting how these neural pathways are related. And we do know that one of the earliest animal models for depression was removal of the olfactory bulbs in a rat. Whoa, I did not know that. That's And, and when you do that, you see the same kinds of neurochemical changes in the brain that you see in depressed humans. Hmm. And so obviously there's a, a lot of differences and depressed humans don't necessarily have a poor sense of smell, although it can be affected. It's hard to know if it's how much of it is the medication and how much the, the depression. But from a positive perspective, there has been some work done looking at the ability of odors to improve mood and to promote positive mood, positive thoughts and positive associations. What is really unfortunate is that a lot of the research that's been published has either been in very small sample sizes, not well designed, not well controlled, done more for commercial purposes than for really careful, scientifically rigorous purposes. Hmm. So while I do think that there's an opportunity there and there is room and a need for really rigorously well-controlled studies getting the funding to do those studies has been very difficult. Mm. You know, we recently designed a study that would address this very question in a very nice way, I think. And the, you know, the price tag was around a half a million dollars. So, you know, it's very hard to get funding to do that type of research, unfortunately. That is a shame because that to me does not seem that much money to do this type of research. When I think about our mental health of, you know, going outdoors mm -hmm. in the, you know, in the nature or going outdoors in nature improves our mental health. There's just linkage. But, and, you know, when I'm listening to you talk of like, what is the role of olfactory senses in that? Because when you go outdoors, you know, there's a, a whole breadth of smells that we experience and maybe that's part of it, right? Like how important is that role in going outdoors and improving our mental health. Right, right. So a lot of smell too, it changes our breathing rate. It changes the regularity of our breathing, the depth of our breathing. And we know that breath makes a big difference in terms of mental state, relaxation, oxygenation, and so forth. So that's certainly likely to be part of it. But, you know, we're really just scratching the surface of understanding the effects of these odor chemicals on the activity in the brain, 
at the, the neural pathways and the hormonal pathways, we've discovered that the same receptors that we use in the nose to detect odors are present in lots of parts of the body. So they're, they're on the tongue, they're in the gut, they're in other parts of the brain, they're in the skin. So these are chemical detectors that are sensing these kinds of chemicals and are going to be having all kinds of physiological effects. Hmm. What's the relationship between smell and attraction between humans? So this was studied a lot in animal models, in mice rodent models, where they recognized that mice could discriminate each other based on a difference in a single gene based on smell. And this particular gene was involved in what's called the MHC complex, which has to do with our immune function. And it made the mice smell sufficiently different that they could discriminate. And they preferred to mate with mice that smelled different based on this particular gene. And the reason that was important is that that made the mice more robust because mm. they're mixing their immune gene right, rather than mating with the same kind. So they're more a stronger strain, right, by doing that. So, you know, that type of research led to a lot of more studies in other mammals to see, you know, how does it work? And we do know that humans can detect, you know, mothers can smell their babies on mm -hmm. t-shirts and so forth. And there is the ability to discriminate. We have a much better ability to discriminate human odors and prefer certain ones and avoid others than we would have given ourselves credit for. But the system in rodents that is responsible for triggering these hormonal responses related to mating is called the vomeronasal organ. Hmm. And they, they're called pheromones, right? Probably yeah. heard of pheromones. Uh -huh. And humans don't have a vomeronasal organ. Hmm. So we're missing that anatomical structure. However, there is some evidence that similar receptors may be present in the main olfactory epithelium. Hmm. So we may still be able to do a bit of this. It's just not as prominent as it would be in a rodent. And we certainly can form preferences and aversions to these odors that are really very subtle. You wouldn't necessarily even know that you were, you know, or be able to describe them or anything, but they are having an impact on your affinity for someone. I'm just thinking of a great reality TV dating show that can be just smell and not seeing the partner and see if that matches up. I think you could call it pheromones. <laughs> How did you get into this sort of research? Were you always obsessed with smell? And this is like, I want to I wanna do research in this. I want to make a career in this. Uh, I had sort of a circuitous path, as many people do. I actually got a master's degree in nutrition, was interested in, in metabolism and feeding behavior and eating and so forth. I always liked to eat. I was never really much into cooking, but I always liked to eat. But then I went to work at Campbell Soup Company. Okay. And this was during the era when there was a lot of work trying to reduce the amount of salt in the soup. Mm -hmm. And that was our big goal was to drop, you know, get rid of the salt. And I realized how hard that is. 
and how many other things in the flavor were changing as a result of reducing the salt, even though you would think it's just less salty, but it would still taste good, right? But, but that's not the case. The salt was doing a lot, of, a lot more. And so that kind of intrigued me. And I started wondering, well, why do we like salt so much? And what is it with this salt that, you know, makes chicken soup taste like chicken soup? Because without the salt, you don't even know that it's chicken soup, yeah. right? So, so that kind of intrigued me. And I, you know, started doing some research at the University of Pennsylvania. And I did my PhD actually studying energy metabolism in the liver. But I worked with somebody who was a faculty member here at Monell. So I got to know more of the work at Monell. And then when I did my postdoc, I moved into studying the sense of smell at a cellular level and kind of became a cell biologist of smell and eventually taste and uh, chemical irritation as well. So I kind of was studying all of these systems at a cellular level. I kept like getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Uh -huh. <laughs> like, you know, how does the, the mouth work? How does the liver work? How does the cell work? How does the you know, kind of, kind of zooming in a little bit. And that's, that's kind of, you know, I just got so interested in the sense of smell. I kind of got inhaled up the nose and stayed there for 17 years. <laughs> Final question I'd like to ask our very busy guests who come on the show, how do you maintain a work-life balance? So my, my secret sauce is uh, ballroom dancing. Whoa, that's so cool. And I actually just did my first dance competition this weekend. It was yeah. so much fun. It takes me completely out of the lab, out of work. And you really have to focus, you know, your mind and your body on some activity. And I think that's so important for people today and to really do something that really gets you completely outside of your normal routine. And it really helps fuel your creativity and yeah. dancing in particular uses everything. It's one of the best exercises to prevent neural degenerative disease. And, and it's just a heck of a lot of fun. So cool. Yeah, you're exercising that creative muscle and that's going to impact your professional work as, as well. Yep. I have so many questions, but I'm going to let you go. Nancy, thank you so much for coming on Design Lab. I was so looking forward to the, this conversation. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. All right. I hope you're inspired to go out there and use your nose and smell. You can find Nancy Rawson on Twitter at N-U-T-R-S-E-N-S -E and reach out to me on social media on Twitter. I can be found at B-O-N-K-U on Instagram at D-R-B-O-N-K-U. Design Lab was produced by Rob Puglisi. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu. We will see you next week.